Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. The potential of focused ultrasound is creating a revolution in therapy. We're concentrating on Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, OCD, depression, epilepsy, stroke, cancer, and cancer immunotherapy. We're working hard to save countless lives and improve the health care of millions of people. That's legendary author John Grisham, and before him, Neil Cassell, one of the world's leading neurologists, counting President Biden among his patients. Together, they've teamed up to spread the word about the effectiveness of a newer, non-invasive treatment known as focused ultrasound. So far, focused ultrasound has been FDA-approved for seven specific therapies and has shown great promise for many more. They spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken. It's a special treat for me to have John Grisham and Dr. Neil Cassell join us. I have known Neil for more than 50 years from our days at the University of Pennsylvania when he was an aspiring neurosurgeon. And John, for many of us, is a legend in his writing, but particularly for me, his story, The Tumor, has dominated much of my life over the past 40 plus years with relatives and close friends, particularly that have had glioblastoma. There is this saying, tall fences make good neighbors. Now, that's clearly not the case for John and Neil, both residents of Charlottesville, Virginia. Neil and John, tell us how this friendship developed. We moved here to Charlottesville 25 years ago with the intention of staying for one year. And then we were going to return to our home in Oxford, Mississippi, where we're from, where we had gone to college, where we had gotten married and built our dream house. And we were just wanted to get away for a year and hide. And so one year became two and three, and we fell in love with Central Virginia and Charlottesville and have very much made our home. It's a wonderful place to live. In spite of what happened here in August of 2017, we have a great university here, and a lot of people who could live anywhere choose to live here. So there's a great mix of people. And Neil's always been in the middle of that. I've known Neil for about 25 years. In his glory days as a very well-known neurosurgeon and very much the man about town, he's sort of a local legend. Charlottesville's a small town. Neil sort of had the reputation back then as being an investor on the side who could lose a lot of money. And that's not unusual for doctors, as you know. And I'm not sure if that's true. I think Neil's made a lot of money. But he started talking about uh, focused ultrasound. And I assumed it was just another business venture that I planned to stay away from. And he was persistent. So uh, he finally, over dinner one night, I convinced my wife, Renee, to look at the presentation for focused ultrasound to treat tumors. And so at that point, I became interested. I talked to Neil. He asked me to join the board because the board was brand new. The foundation was brand new. And once I realized the potential of this non-invasive surgical procedure to save countless lives and improve the health care of millions of people, I realized how important this work can be and is. Neil, how did you recall meeting John? I really wanted to be introduced to John, but I really wanted to be introduced to his wife, who is not only knockout beautiful, but is the nicest person you've ever met. So that was the magnet. And then we started to talk, and I recognized by virtue of his character that he could 
be tremendously valuable in advancing this uh, cause of focused ultrasound. But our, our friendship annotated the foundation, and it's a small community. We would bump into each other at a variety of social events, and we enjoy each other's company. As I look back over time, I remember they came to pick you up to operate now on President-elect Biden at the time. He was a senator. Take us back to that point in history. I was actually in Bethesda at an NIH study section, and I got a call from President-elect Biden's brother saying that he was diagnosed with a ruptured aneurysm. He was at Walter Reed. He needed urgent surgery, and they were scouring the country for somebody who had a lot of experience. And could I be convinced to join that team and help with the surgery? It was a sort of a rather stressful experience because in my entire career, I'd only operated outside of my home institution maybe two times. The success of the things that I did were not so much related to surgical virtuosity, but to the ability to orchestrate a highly talented team of people. And I didn't have my team. Anyhow, I went and, and did that. And we took care of his ruptured aneurysm. And three months later, he came back and we operated on an unruptured aneurysm, which was on the opposite side. So I remember, Neil, with you and President-elect Biden a couple years ago at the Global Conference, a discussion about health, family, cancer. It was one of the greatest talks I ever saw him give. One in two men get cancer. In America, one in three women get some form of cancer. And so these are real life stories. And as I think, Neil, about our friendship, it has been populated by my own family's diseases in the late 70s, whether it was my father, my mother-in-law, my first cousin who had a tumor on the brainstem, whether it was my stepfather who had a glioblastoma in the mid 80s, and most recently, the battle to save my sister-in-law's life that my brother Lowell led. We interacted with you during that period of time. And if you remember, Neil, we were putting this march on in 1998 to culminate the effort to double the NIH budget, triple the NCI budget, increase funding for medical research, and brought a half a million people to Washington, D.C. And a woman had come up to me just before I had gone up to the podium to welcome everyone and told me her daughter had died the day before from a glioblastoma. And 15 years or so before her other daughter had died of a glioblastoma and her daughter had received the same treatment for the most part that her previous daughter had received 15 or so years before. And all I could think about is that she is here today for our efforts on putting on the march, her strength in being there, and the lack of progress and technology in dealing with this disease struck home for me. Neil, could you take us through the technology evolution here and where is the research and technology today? Let me back up a bit and tell you 
how much glioblastoma weaves through all of our lives. John has had friends who have died. You've had family members and friends. My 40-year-old son-in-law died of a glioblastoma. My aunt, who is the closest woman to me, had a glioblastoma. And the family insisted that I operate on her, which was not a trivial thing because the tumor was in her speech area. My 30-year partner, co-chair of neurosurgery, died from a glioblastoma. I was very involved with Bo Biden's care. And then Leah, your sister-in-law. So it's interesting how that glioblastoma sort of wanders through all of our experiences. And there's only like 12,000 patients a year who are afflicted with glioblastoma. Not a major public health problem. But as you pointed out, in 20 years, the average life expectancy for glioblastoma has increased from 12 to 14 months. Not astonishing progress. So focused ultrasound has the potential to be a game changer for this because it can be an alternative or a supplement to traditional surgery, radiation therapy, drug delivery, and immunotherapy. So it's multiple shots on goal for glioblastoma. And the more progress we make in this particular area is going to drive progress in other areas as well. So what's needed is to fund more research, both laboratory research and clinical trials, but also to tap into the capital markets and to fund these companies and get some of these companies to be successful. And the other thing that we need in addition to financial capital is human or intellectual capital. And we need to train up young people, but that takes too long. So the ultimate force multiplier for human capital is collaboration. So we spend a lot of time fostering collaboration. John, after a distinguished law career, you began writing novels more than 30 years ago. I believe you had a string of 20 to 30 number one bestsellers, nine of which or more have been made into movies. You've had this decade-long commitment to activism, among them supporting the Innocence Project. And I think most people would not know you served seven years as a Mississippi state representative. When you wrote The Tumor five years ago, you called it the most important book you had ever written. Can you give us a summary of the book and how it developed and what you were thinking about? The idea came about probably over lunch with Neil. Neil and I have taken many trips together to raise money. We've sat down with a lot of potential donors. I kind of get my foot in the door because of, I guess, the celebrity angle. Neil is there to show what we are raising money for and the potential of focused ultrasound surgery. And so we go in as a team and sometimes we walk out with a check. Sometimes we don't. We don't get down. We have too much work to do. There's too much urgency with this work to worry about the check you didn't get. We're brainstorming about a way to raise money and raise awareness. I started making notes for an idea for a story about a brain tumor. Neil has mentioned his loved ones. Neil was greatly affected by the death of his son-in-law, who was a 40-year-old veterinarian in Philadelphia. 
and a great guy. And that really bothered Neil because Neil's seen more death than any of us can ever imagine. And Neil had the x-ray of his son-in-law's uh, brain tumor in his wallet for a long time. He showed it to me many years ago. It gets your attention. You can imagine the horror of, of being in the doctor's office, scared anyway, and you see the x-ray and there's this growth in your brain. You've got about 12 months and you can go through surgery, chemo, radiation, all that kind of stuff. And you might get 14 months. You may choose not to do all that stuff and just prepare for the end. And you may get six or eight months, but I mean, you're talking about no time at all. And the horror of that, that we've all seen and lived through, that's the story of the tumor. It's a very short book for a young man who's 35 years old with a beautiful wife and beautiful kids and a bright future. And one day he falls down on the bathroom floor in a, in a seizure and he's rushed to the hospital and the x-ray comes back with what is obviously a big problem. I leaned on Neil heavily for the medical stuff. I wanted to get it right. That's the first half. The second half is what might be in the future, the potential of focused ultrasound to treat that same tumor in a way that gives the patient perhaps 10, 15, 20 more years. It takes the diagnosis away from being fatal and makes it chronic. Uh, the problem can be treated time and time again. It's not radiation, so there's no buildup. And the potential is to add meaningful years to the lives of many patients. And so the book has two parts, the way we treat now and have always treated and the lack of progress there. And the second part is where we're headed real soon with the future of focused ultrasound. I had a friend, Reg Lewis, and Reg in many ways for me was the Jackie Robinson of business, an African-American who we committed a, a billion dollars to fund. And he had met Neil a number of years before at one of our Milken family cancer award events in New York. And he had come to see me and he talked about a bunch of things. He talked about life. He talked about buying art. And during the visit, he asked me if I had Neil Cassell's phone number. I didn't think anything of it. A few months later, he passed away. He didn't say one word that he had a glioblastoma. He didn't tell anyone. He was a very proud man. And I didn't know at the time that maybe one of the reasons he came to see me was to say goodbye. And he was that person that you talked about who elected to take no treatment and live as long as he could without all the side effects. So as I went through the book, it flashed in my mind and my sister-in-law uh, who passed away a few years ago lived, I think, for 30 months. And all I could think about was how brave she was. Every new clinical trial, and I think many of the people who will be listening to this don't understand fully those that go through these clinical trials that might not work for them, in many ways are heroes because they'll work for someone else. I think it's very important to recognize the unsung heroes and think about the courage of the patients that enter the clinical trials. 
particularly the ones with the brain indications. Think of the first patient, the courage that he had to put his head into the machine and be treated and not know what the outcome was going to be. And fortunately, the outcome was perfect. If the outcome had been a disaster, we'd be having a different conversation. But uh, we never give enough credit to those patients who volunteer for these clinical trials. I remember, Neil, the first time that you presented the idea of non-invasive surgery. Who doesn't want non-invasive surgery? And in the early 90s, we had this challenge of minimally invasive surgery. We found it took almost 10 years to really get acceptance here in America because when you went to the oncologist who was running the urology oncology practice, the head of that department was often a surgeon. And so they now weren't going to convert to doing minimally invasive surgery like they were a fighter pilot or something using that technology. And so intuitive surgical progressed very slowly for 10 years when we knew less side effects, less blood, you're in the hospital maybe for a day instead of five or seven days. Today, minimally invasive robotic surgery has been accepted pretty much around the world. When you give us those two paths, John, in your book, of going in and being treated and going home the same day and going out with your family that day instead of the next week or two in the hospital. You know, it is such an uplifting thought that we could do that. Neil, what are the challenges in gaining acceptance for focus ultrasound? What are the steps that need to be taken? One of the largest barriers is lack of awareness and acceptance by patients, physicians, and the institutions that would purchase the equipment. So one of the major activities of the foundation is to increase awareness. The other thing that is key that underlies everything we do is evidence. Evidence of feasibility, evidence of safety, evidence of efficacy, does it work? And these days, evidence of cost, you know, not only procedural cost, but cost to society. So the two major thrusts of the foundation are to increase awareness and to produce the evidence that's needed to get regulatory approval, to get reimbursement and to get acceptance. And that's all that's about is funding research more and more research. So Neil, so many indications today, more than a hundred on tremors. Are we there today that if you have these tremors that you should go and get focused ultrasound treatment? So focused ultrasound is now not only approved by the FDA, but it's reimbursed by Medicare and by many commercial insurance companies. And it is a terrific alternative to traditional surgical approaches. It is a life-changing experience for the patients. Some of them have been disabled by the tremor 
for 10, 15, or 20 years. They go into the machine and they come out cured. Not too long ago, one of the patients was talking about the surgeon. She said, I think that this surgeon is the new Jesus Christ. And we said, oh my gosh, what a blasphemous statement. She said, I'd been disabled for 20 years. I couldn't drink a cup of coffee. I couldn't button my shirt. I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't go to a restaurant and I couldn't go to church. I went into his machine and I came out cured. And she stood up in front of a crowd and held up a glass of iced tea and her hand was rock solid. So the focused ultrasound treatment of essential tremor is a pivotal event in the evolution of focused ultrasound because it demonstrated the potential of the technology. And everybody can appreciate that. So it's now approved by the FDA for seven indications, essential tremor, which is a cousin of Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's tremor, pain from bone metastasis, prostate cancer, benign prostatic hypertrophy. And just last week, it was approved by the FDA for this terribly disabling benign tumor of bones in children. A couple of years ago, at one of the board meetings, we had this kid from Toronto, John will remember this, who was 15 years old. He was a multi-sport athlete, and he'd been disabled. He hadn't been able to get out of bed, let alone play his sports, by this small benign tumor that was refractory to all medication. Literally crawled into the hospital, and the next day, he ran out of the hospital. And he came down to Charlottesville to one of our board meetings to thank the board members for giving him back his life. And you've seen the composition of the board. Not many of them are prone to crying. We were passing the Kleenex around the room. So that's the potential of focused ultrasound. So there's 130 some indications, about 35 have regulatory approval around the world, seven in the US. And there's still a lot of work to be done to bring these indications across the finish line and to find the ones that truly provide unique value in the therapeutic armamentarium. And so we're concentrating on the brain indications. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, OCD, depression, a lot of work now on epilepsy, stroke. So that's one major area. The other major area that has us really excited is cancer and cancer immunotherapy, particularly glioblastoma and pancreatic cancer, as well as metastatic melanoma. We just got the results of a terrific study of knee arthritis, relieving pain in patients who are too old, too sick to have knee replacements, but they're disabled by their pain. So the ultrasound is a way of treating that. So it is truly creating a revolution in therapy that so, will impact the lives without exaggeration of millions of people. John, what has encouraged you since you joined the foundation board about the progress? And as a layperson, as you described yourself, what do you think would accelerate the progress and the use of focus ultrasound? We had a patient who was suffering from severe Parkinson's to the point to where she couldn't walk anymore. We have this video of this lady that we came to love who was rolled into the clinic in a wheelchair 
And they shaved her head and they put her into the MRI. And she was wide awake, no pain. She was treated for four hours with focal ultrasound, a thousand beams of energy going into one spot. And they moved the treatment around. And when she was finished, the doctor said, okay, you're done. She said, where's a wheelchair? <laughs> and they said, you don't have a wheelchair anymore. You have to walk out of here. And she slowly got off the bed and she walked out. And these are battle-hardened doctors and nurses. And there was not a dry eye anywhere in the room. And stories like that motivate us to pursue the urgency of what we're doing and to raise the awareness and to raise the money to push this technology toward the finish line. John and Neil, thank you today for joining us and taking us on this journey. And we'll look forward to the progress of Focus Ultrasound and the promise of non-invasive treatment. All the best and good health to you. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.